We're going to be in Joshua chapter 10, 11, and 12 this evening. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 10, 11, and 12. You know, uh, when you go, uh, you know, probably uh, during the, the 4th of July week and go and see, you know, the fireworks show, uh, you know, they usually always end uh, the fireworks uh, with, uh, you know, what they call the grand finale, right? At the beginning, they're just shooting them off one by one, and you get, kind of get to see uh, the shapes and the colors and uh, as they go up in the air. But, you know, at the end, again, it, it, it's chaotic, right? It's a beautiful chaos, but it's chaotic with all of them going off at one time. Well, that's really what's going to be happening here in Joshua chapter 10, 11, and 12. You know, we've been following Israel uh, through as we've gone through these uh, different chapters of the book of Joshua. And, you know, and they're taking one king at a time. They're taking one battle, one city at a time. Uh, each war has maybe one or two chapters associated uh, with it. And we have the opportunity to dissect those battles and to see the good things that Israel did and the negative things that they did. And we really, you know, we get a blow by blow highlight of each of these battles. But as we move into these next uh, few chapters, things are going to be drastically different. You know, the, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan are starting to wise up. Uh, they know if they continue as uh, uh, working by themselves that they're going to be picked off one by one by Israel. And so, you know, we kind of saw this last week at the beginning of chapter 9 that they are starting to form these alliances. They're starting to uh, gather their troops together uh, for what's about to come when Israel comes into their land. And, you know, surely there must be strength in numbers, right? That, that's why they are uh, associating with one another. And so we're going to ask ourselves one of these questions tonight. Just how many kings does it take to take on the God of Israel? You know, the, the, the process of conquering Canaan, which is, you know, really the theme of the book of Joshua, is about to come to an end. Look at Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, for instance. Joshua 11, verse 23, you know, we get, the, we get the concluding statement here that says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. You know, the, the, the majority of the rest of the book of Joshua is going to deal, basically, now that they have the land, uh, they're going to start being allotted uh, their assigned uh, pieces of, of land according to their tribes, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And I know it's probably not going to be intriguing for us to spend a chapter at a time going through, you know, what land Benjamin was parceled or, or, or Judah and such. But there are going to be some more intriguing lessons as, as we continue reading through uh, the book of Joshua. But again, this section here, chapters 10, 11, 12, is going to be very chaotic. We're going to notice a few points. And what I mean by chaotic is that we're getting these constant barrage of names of kings and cities being conquered, people being conquered, uh, the people being utterly destroyed. We're not going to take the time to read all three chapters tonight, uh, but, but we're going to look at more of an overview uh, of these three chapters. Of course, let, let's go all the, way, all the way back to the book of Numbers when this begins. Really, uh, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is over. Israel knows it's time to conquer the land that's been promised to them. They take on the kings of Sihon and Og before they go into the land of Canaan. 
uh, because they would not let them pass through the land to get there. And then once they get into the land, of course, we see them battle Joshua or battle Jericho in Joshua chapter six. We see them take on Ai in chapter seven and eight. We see last week the deception of the Gibeonites. Remember that the, the Gibeonites who came to Joshua and pretended that they came from a faraway land. But again, where we're going to really focus on in chapters 10, 11, 12 on the bigger picture. Uh, the bigger picture here is that in chapter 10, God is going to give Israel victory over southern uh, Canaan. Chapters 11, God is going to give the victory to the northern portion of Canaan. And chapter 12 is basically just a summary of all of the kings that Israel conquered uh, during this time, during this conquest. And so let, let's notice three uh, main points here, uh, again, in a, a more of an overview of the chapters. And then the first one we want to notice uh, from these chapters is that God is never outnumbered. You know, it didn't matter how many kings there were. It didn't matter the, the battle plans that they put together. It didn't matter how impressive their armory was, the, the number of horses or chariots. None of those things mattered. It didn't matter how many kings uh, the land threw at the Israelites. If they were on God's side, they were going to be victorious. Joshua chapter 10, starting in verses 1 and 2. Uh, let's read a few of these verses. Now, now it came about when Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it just as he had done to Jericho and its king so he had done to Ai and its king and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land that he greatly uh, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were mighty see again again we we touched on this last week, that this is a big deal here, that, that the people of the land of Canaan see that the Gibeonites who lived in the land with them uh, are now in, in subjection to Israel. Even though they deceived, themselves, deceived Israel into letting them live, uh, they are in subjection to the Israelites. And this is a big deal because these were mighty men, we're told here in verse 2. They come from royal cities. And so if these mighty men from these royal cities are in subjection to Israel or to the God of Israel, uh, that's a big deal. And so this causes the kings of the land to come together to form this alliance to take on Israel. We'll look at verses three through five. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Jephiah, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. See, again, these five kings... They are banning together. They know that there is strength in numbers. And again, these aren't just some random group of individuals, uh, but these are kings of war. Right? Uh, these are kings of fortified cities. Uh, it's almost as if they're an all-star team of the land of Canaan. You remember in Numbers chapter 13 when the spies, the 12 spies were sent into the land and they come back? You remember uh, what their, their thoughts were of the land? You know, the people are strong in the land. We're, we're scared. We can't take this. These are the types of kings uh, that they are about to go up against. 
In the next few verses, verses 6 through 28, Israel, they come and protect the Gibeonites, again, because they had made that pact with them, that covenant with them, that they were going to let them live. They were going to let them be their, uh, the carriers of the water and the carriers of, of wood. And so God, uh, he is there uh, during that battle with Israel. Uh, he sends the hailstones from uh, above. He, he stops the sun during Israelites' battle with them. And the five kings, uh, as their people are being defeated, the five kings flee and they go hide out into a, a cave. And eventually uh, they're put to death. Uh, the rest of this chapter, chapter 10, is all about the battle of southern Canaan. Uh, all of those kingdoms in the southern part of the land of Canaan are, are taken. Look at verses 40 through 43 of chapter 10. Then Joshua struck all the land, the hill country of the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes that, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. You know, he says there in verse 42, all these kings. Uh, again, we ask the question, how many kings does it take? All these kings went up against the God of Israel and the Israelites at one time. And they were victorious time and time again. Verse 43, you know, mentions, we see this a couple times in these chapters, how they, they win in battle and they go back to Gilgal to home base. And then we move into chapter 11, where they're going to be taking on the northern kingdoms of Canaan. Joshua chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Medan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashaph, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth and in the lowland and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the hill country and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah, they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Meram to fight against Israel. Again, we're moving into the northern section of Canaan, and the north is doing the same thing, right? They're making this alliance with one another to take on Joshua and the Israelites, and this is, a, this is an even more impressive assemblage of warriors. Uh, notice again in verse 4, it talks about that it's as numerous as the sea on the seashore. But then verse 6 says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots of fire. Drop down to verse 15 with me. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, that rises towards Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. 
Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them in all battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, we see this was an impressive army. And again, we, we beg uh, to, to mention here that it does not matter how many kings in chapter 12 of Joshua, as I mentioned earlier, it's just a list, a, a, a who's who of the kings of the land who the Israelites overthrown. Notice in verse 31, or excuse me, verse 24, at the very end of that verse, you know, this is a perfect trivia question for, for the kids that are going to be doing this in Bible Bowl in the study of Joshua. How many kings did it take that Israel conquered? There in verse 24, all 31 kings it mentions. Why list them all? What's the point of Joshua listing all of these kings, all 31? Well, again, if we look back in, in Numbers chapter 13, again, when the uh, Israelites, the 12 spies, went into the land to, uh, to look it out, to spy out the land, and they came back. Remember, in the 10 had that negative report. You know, it, it does flow with milk and honey. The people in the land... Uh, but they're strong. Their cities are fortified. Their cities are large. The descendants of Anak and the Nephilim are there. You know, we're just grasshoppers in their sight. They are too strong for us. But when we get here to Joshua chapter 12, we see that that didn't matter, right? It didn't matter because God destroyed each one of them, utterly destroyed their kings and their armies. God says it doesn't matter how many kings. In man, man's eyes, it's too much. But in God's eyes, it was too small. You know, this is not the only time that we are reminded within Scripture that, that God's people are outnumbered, right? Leviticus chapter 26, uh, specifically in this, this chapter, uh, Moses is laying out the, the curses and the blessings of obeying God. And notice in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 7 and 8, he writes, But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Again, it doesn't matter. We'd be outnumbered five to a hundred, a hundred to ten thousand. But if you are on God's side of the battle, you will be victorious. Remember in the book of Judges of Gideon, you remember Gideon who took on the Midianites? Uh, he had to whittle down his army just to 300 men. And God, uh, with 300 men, defeated Midian who had 135,000. Again, that, that was a great victory of 300 versus 135,000. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18? It was he versus the 450 prophets of Baal. And again, he was victorious because he was on God's side. You know, John chapter 15 verse 18 reminds us that, uh, or that Jesus tells us that, you know, if the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were to look up right now the current population of the world, you know, it's reaching close to eight Billion. And we understand that uh, the New Testament Christians make up a tiny fraction of that number. Again, we are 
outnumbered in this world. But as God uh, lets us know, as he let the Israelites know in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Uh, again, read, read, this is up on here on the board. But it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved the Israelites of the Old Testament, not because they were great in number, but because of their obedience to him. And that is the same for the New Testament a Christian. He reminds us in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, that God says, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. You know, you don't need to be scared of man. What can man do to me? It does not matter how many kings we face in this life. And we all know that we have our own kings to deal with, whether that's our, our jobs, uh, our coworkers, our friends. There are those things that stand before us uh, that, that are trying to you know, tempt us into not obeying God. Right? We have those kings that we have to deal with. With. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that God will always give us a way of escape uh, if we continue following in his word. Joshua left nothing undone uh, of all that the Lord commanded them, we read. And we, again, as Christians, cannot leave anything undone as well. Well, let's notice the second point here, that God calls us to accountability. You know, go back with me to Joshua chapter 10. Uh, we remember, again, and we, again, we talked about this last week uh, of the Gibeonites, the covenant that he made with the Gibeonites. You know, the Gibeonites are afraid of these kings that are banning up uh, to uh, go against them. You know, they, they plead out to Joshua and the Israelites, don't abandon your servants, save us, you know, come, come to our cities and, and protect us. You know, Israel made a covenant with Gibeon and the Lord expected them to keep it. And when you and I make a covenant with the Lord, he expects us to keep it as well. You know, when, when we have obeyed the gospel, when we have reenacted the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and at that point uh, we are added to the church, uh, we are in a covenant with uh, the Lord. And that covenant says that I choose you, Jesus. I, I promise to live as you call me to live. And he expects us to live a life worthy of that covenant. No matter what covenant we enter, he expects us to be true to it. Right? Our yes is to be yes. Our no is to be no. Whether it's the gospel covenant, whether it's a covenant of marriage. You know, maybe you've heard someone say this before, but promises are like pie crusts. They are made to be broken. Right? And that's the sentiment that we uh, sadly see so many people in the world uh, choose to do uh, because uh, they view promises as fragile, as it, they're okay to be broken. Uh, maybe if another or better circumstance comes along, you know, it's okay to put off uh, that, uh, that promise for something better. You know, but of course, God kept his promise to give the Israelites the whole land. You know, we can go along our, in our day and maybe we'll say to ourselves, well, you know, it just it won't hurt. You know, maybe just this one time, maybe this one little white lie at this time, uh, it'll be OK. 
Or, or maybe, you know, one uh, little uh, glance at inappropriate, um, you know, pictures. Or, or, maybe, or maybe just one curse word. You know, I'm with my buddies. It's okay if I just use one uh, curse word or, or use the Lord's name in vain. Uh, just this one time. I promise never to do that again. But what if God said, what if God said, I'll just take care of 30 of the 31 kings or 29 of those kings or 28 or 27? We get the point. The promise was made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 that he would keep his promise that the Israelites would inherit this land. You know, Romans chapter three, verse four, Paul reminds us that uh, let God be found true and every man be found a liar. Yes, we are weak. We make mistakes from time to time, but God calls us to be accountable. And if we're going to uh, slip, if we're going to, um, you know, fall, remember the covenant you made with Jesus. Remember those things. He calls us to be accountable. And finally, the last point that we want to make in these chapters of Joshua is God listens and responds. You know, we talked about a little bit about this Wednesday evening in Joshua chapter 10 about the sun standing still. It's probably one of the more uh, favorite chapters or, or accounts within the book of Joshua. Joshua spoke to the Lord, right? Look, look at Joshua chapter 10, starting verse 12. It says, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. What about this account? We see a miracle took place, right? Again, we don't know the specifics. We don't know exactly how it happened, but only God could do this. The sun stayed out longer than it should have by a long shot. And why did he do it? To show us his great power? Uh, because he needed a few more minutes to, uh, or hours or daylight for his troops to complete the battle? But no, this wasn't for God's benefit, but this was for our benefit. Because God hears when his people calls out. Right? During this great battle, God was able to do what he wanted to do. He could have ended that war at any time. Right? When he sent the hailstones from heaven and knocked out more uh, of the enemy's armies than even the Israelites did, he could have ended it at any point. But God wanted them to know that he hears and responds to them. The Lord listened to the voice of a man, verse 14, again says, Joshua asked, give us more daylight. And God said, okay. Day, a day that had never been seen before or after. In the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 5, James is writing about the power of prayer. And in chapter 5, verses, uh, 15, or excuse me, verses 17 through 18 in particular, he brings up the example of Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah was this great prophet of God, uh, but James reminds us that Elijah, as great as he was, he was still just a man, and God listened to him. Look at James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruits. Do you notice what he said there? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was human. He was fleshly. And he prayed for a drought. This takes place in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 18. And he prayed for this drought. And for three and a half years, uh, there was no rain on the land. This was to punish the wicked king Ahab. But after three and a half years, he prayed earnestly once again. And rain was brought forth. His powerful, earnest prayer made a difference. Right? And God listened. God responded. Again, although Elijah was a prophet of God... Uh, he reminds us that he was a man of flesh, just like you and I. If we back up to verse 16 in this chapter, James chapter 5, he reminds us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's who Elijah was. He was a righteous man. Don't you and I want righteous individuals praying on our behalf? Again, the God who heard Elijah still listens to the prayers of his people today. You know, uh, we could have spent all evening reading these three chapters. There's a lot of king's names and a lot of cities. But again, that's not the point of these chapters. You know, we could fill a phone book with the amount of people mentioned here in Joshua 10 through 12. But the, the lessons that we want to learn through these three great chapters, again, that it does not matter how many kings or adversaries we have in this life. We need to stay faithful and remember that covenant promise that we made with the Lord. He's not going to break his end. We should not break ours. And again, you are not alone in this life. God listens to us. This is the God we serve. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Again, this is the God we serve here this evening. So big and powerful, yet he cares for us. He hears us. He wants us to submit to him and give him our whole heart in devotion to him. And won't you do that today, this evening, as we offer the invitation? If anyone uh, here this evening is ready to begin their Christian walk, to become a Christian, uh, we know the Bible says to hear the word of God, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to repent of our sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And at that point, the Lord will add you to his church and will live a faithful life for him. Uh, we're, we're ready to assist you with that. We would be delighted to help you uh, as you begin that new walk. Or this evening, if you need the prayers of the congregation, uh, if you need to ask for encouragement or strength or uh, whatever your need to this evening, let us know as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.